When does doing your best cross the line into unhealthy perfectionism? And what can you do as a parent if you are worried that this is affecting your child? Dr Justin Colson is a parenting expert, founder of happyfamilies.com.au and author of six books, also a co-host on Australia's Channel 9's Parental Guidance. We spoke with him last about his book on how to connect with teenage daughters, something he has some personal experience with. He is a dad to six daughters. Justin said perfectionism can stop children from taking risks and making mistakes, but parents can help them adapt. Justin, welcome back to Nine to Noon. It's really nice to be with you. Thanks for having me. How do we define perfectionism? What are some of the traits that explain it? Sure. So from an academic point of view, we would say that perfectionism is a combination of two things, having excessively high personal standards, so we're striving for flawlessness, but also secondly, having overly critical self-evaluations. If I was to summarize that in, in a really simple sentence, it would be a perfectionist says, I must be the best, but I never am. It's really a conversation about how we feel about making mistakes. And perfectionism uh, Perfectionism is, is a, an illness where we feel absolutely sickened by the possibility that we might make a mistake. So it's fairly extreme in, uh, on the sliding scale. Nature or nurture, do we know? Of course, it's always a combination. But do some people uh, just pop out? And I'll be interested in your lineup of six girls. Do some people just pop out more inclined, whether it is by um, birth order or anything else? So we can fairly safely rule out birth order. Birth order is not particularly strongly implicated with many things at all, although it's often claimed to be. Uh, but I think that we probably can lean fairly heavily towards socialization when it comes to something like perfectionist, uh, per- perfectionistic strivings and perfectionistic concerns. And there's a difference between those two things. This is probably a, an important distinction to to drill into in the early stages of this conversation as well. Somebody who has perfectionistic strivings is somebody who is really seeking high performance at, at, at the very the very greatest level. Somebody who has perfectionistic concerns, and this is where we delve from being what I might consider um, somebody who has, I, I'm, I'm going to differentiate between healthy and unhealthy perfectionism, and I know that that's a, a really fine line to be treading, but essentially a healthy perfectionist is saying, I really, really want to do well. I have high expectations. I have high standards. I have the capacity to do well if I apply myself. Now, now healthy perfectionists still behave in what I would consider to be somewhat unhealthy ways, but compared to the unhealthiest version of perfectionism, where perfectionistic concerns come to the fore, uh, it's it's quite benign. Perfectionistic concerns mean means that we become hypervigilant to mistakes. We doubt everything about our actions and we, we become fearful of negative social evaluation. In other words, we kind of feel like our identity is at risk if we do not measure up. So those perfectionistic concerns are identity-oriented, whereas perfectionistic strivings are more oriented towards the standards that we hold. That makes uh, perfect sense. When it comes to the concerns, um, let's delve a little bit more into the psychology, um, perhaps before we get into what what parents and others can can do to help. Is it um, is it is it a differentiation again that a high performer, a diligent, conscientious, striving high performer, 
actually isn't afraid of mistakes and in fact will tolerate endless mistakes in order to achieve their goal. Is that another differentiation? Yeah, it's a really nice distinction. The The idea that you can be a high performer who learns from failure and develops and improves through it is quite different to the perfectionist who, uh, th- there's a, a tremendous paradox around perfectionism, which stems from high levels of anxiety around performance. I mean, that's ultimately what we're talking about. And that is that if I've got extremely heightened anxiety, feeling that I might fail, the likelihood is I probably won't try. And and one of the big challenges we have with perfectionism, we see it all the time in students, anyone who's lectured at university and dealt with perfectionistic students or a high school teacher, or even sometimes uh, looking after the little ones at primary school, will see a, a really high avoidance orientation for any task in which a student is concerned that they might not do well. And that avoidance orientation really comes down to, I've got this goal, I've got this belief that I must do things well, or I am deficient as a human. I've got a, I've got a problem with who I am if I can't perform this well. Now, we all know as adults, uh, clear thinking adults, that whenever you try anything new, you're likely to fail. You're probably going to do quite poorly. It's true. Some people have a natural proclivity to some things. Every now and again, you might fluke it as well. But usually when you try to do something that's complex, difficult, hard, Uh, Any kind of challenge like that will lead to failure. Somebody with a perfectionistic bent is essentially going to say, hmm, uh, I'm going to fail. This is going to look bad. Therefore, I won't try. That way, I can't fail. That way, I I get to retain my unblemished, my perfect record. Now, obviously, that's a, a, a terrible place to be because you never actually improve and the the great paradox is you can't be perfect if you haven't tried but that's the that's the mindset of the perfectionist. Carol Dweck's wonderful work on this um, is screaming at me right now and her encouragement to parents never to say to children you know you're brilliant or you're this or you're that or whatever that you say I really like the way you work so hard at that or you've really persevered so you're you are um, praising a trait rather than giving them an identity of being something that they can't be. But let's park that for one moment because I'm wondering where this stems from in many instances and whether there can be sort of deeper psychological or social um, components to this. Will often these people struggle with self-esteem or self-worth or is it actually separate from that? Is it very much this identity as a, as a high achiever that they've latched onto, uh, rather than lacking other kind of self-value. Mm, I, th- I think that it can be both, and and it might be worth in in answering that deviating into the three different types of perfectionism that researchers have identified. So, we have a, a kind of perfectionism that's called self-oriented perfectionism. That's where we have these unrealistic self-evaluations. We're punitive towards ourselves because we we are intrinsically, uh, from, a, from a motivation point of view, the researchers would call this an introjected form of motivation. Introjected means I'm doing it because I must, because I have to, because I have to prove from an ego point of view that I can do this. And it's a self-oriented perfectionism that is, is quite harmful. Self-oriented perfectionism is essentially saying my value is attributed to an outcome. The the second type of the three types of perfectionism that are worth uh, delving into here is called socially prescribed perfectionism. So this is basically 
when I'm finding it difficult to meet other people's expectations of me. This goes back to your nature-nurture question. The self-oriented perfectionism, that can be something that's simply within a person, but the socially prescribed perfectionism, which is the most, without question, this is the most debilitating form of perfectionism, is when we feel like other people expect us to be excessively good at, at an uncontrollably unfair level. Socially prescribed perfectionism is the perfectionism that I experience when my dad says that I must be a lawyer or a doctor or an engineer or a dentist, or my mum says that I must be beautiful and I can't possibly wear that dress outside. Uh, I, the socially prescribed perfectionism is where the social context is so excessively demanding, and I feel that I must be perfect to measure up to what my teacher, my parents, my whoever uh, expects of me. The third kind of perfectionism is called other-oriented perfectionism, and that is when we become the police of others' perfect behavior. It's where we impose unrealistic standards on those around us. And, uh, and, and many of us parents would probably say that from time to time we may have some other-oriented perfectionism towards our kids. And there's something of a, a correlation between these. Like a lot of people who are self-oriented in their perfectionism also then project that perfectionism onto the world around them, the people in their environment. They say, well, I have high standards for myself and I have very high standards for you as well, that kind of thing. So let's look at first how you recognise this perhaps or become aware that it's something you really want to uh, help your child with or, or, or um, you might be a teacher or you might be um, just someone in a, in, a, in a young person's life or you might be parenting. First, what are you looking to recognise and then second, bring us into some strategies that can help. Sure. Okay. So when it comes to recognizing perfectionism in, for, for example, our children, what we'll typically be looking for uh, is that they will have these excessively high standards, that they will be constantly striving, that they'll always be denigrating of their work, that it will never be enough. We may even be the supportive one rather than having that uh, perfectionism where it's socially prescribed and we're putting it on them. We might be the soft touch. We're saying, hey, so long as you do your best. And in fact, you don't even have to do your best so long as you show up. <laughs> like we, we can be fairly laissez-faire, but there's that internalized desire to be amazing. So if our children are refusing to go to school, they're saying that they can't show up because there's an exam. If they're um, devastated, feeling like they are simply not good enough because they only got 94% on their essay. It's these kinds of things. If they've got a real strong avoidance orientation towards any task that they, or, or any, any opportunity that they've not participated in before or that they've tried and failed when they have that unwillingness and and part of that is natural right i mean we we have a, a striving for competence and if we can't do something well we do tend to have a low level of motivation but if we see this pervasively across contexts and in different times and different places our children are saying no i can't i can't i can't my mom had a saying when i was a kid growing up and it really got me out of the whole perfectionistic uh mindset she just said can't means don't want to can't means don't want to. Now, you and I both know that that's not entirely true, but for a little bit of tough love and a little bit of a reset from a, a, a mindset orientation, I found that it was a tremendously helpful thing. And while I swore that I would never say that myself, my children have heard that as a mantra in our home for the last 20-something years, can't means don't want to. But those are the kinds of things that you're looking for, the orientation towards avoidance when I'm not going to look competent or getting results and feeling like the world is over and my my individual worth has suffered because now I am not enough. So and the 
How do you help? The, how do you help the young person with that intrinsic judgment? Because just saying, um, I mean, we often hear another, you know, important thing to always do is to recognise how someone is feeling, to um, affirm that a feeling is being had, and that just dismissing it and saying, "Oh, don't worry about it," or this, that, or the next thing, won't actually turn the dial. What will Not with this kind? Okay, a few things. First of all, when we make the focus all about achievement. And so this is, a, this is a specific parenting practice. Many parents say, just do your best. But what is your best? It's kind of like that thing. If someone says, I just want them to fulfill their potential. Whenever I'm running a parenting workshop in schools or corporations, I'll ask parents, do you want your kids to fulfill their potential? And all the hands go up and I'll say, fantastic. How many of you have fulfilled your potential? And everyone laughs awkwardly because they know that that's an impossible task. We never actually fulfill our potential. The thing is, our conversation with our kids is so often about them fulfilling their potential. It's about them achieving. Even if it's do your best, that's some form of an achievement. When we make the focus all about achievement, children become averse to making mistakes. And if we add guilt to that, then the aversion to risk and mistake increases. Now, this doesn't mean that we should simply accept mediocrity. What it means is that we need to do a few things. The first thing that I would recommend is range, range and breadth. That is, forget this early specialization, getting the kids into the thing that they're going to be an Olympic gold medal winner in. When we look carefully at long-term research across countries and across domains, whether it's sport or academics, whether it's industry or you pick it, what we find is that there are those kids who streak ahead of the pack early, the early achievers. But if you peak too early, that's not necessarily going to be a great way to live the rest of your life. What the, what the really smartest research highlights is that kids who have had a whole lot of range, exposure, failure, all kinds of different opportunities throughout, not just their childhood, but even their adulthood, usually bloom kind of late, somewhere in their late 30s, early 40s, maybe even their late 40s or early 50s. And they bring all of their life experience, all of that range and depth and breadth from so many different places to bear on the thing that they've finally found in their late 30s or their 40s. And they become vastly better at that. So I think are that's a variety a of experiences rather than Quite just right. ex- and rather than just focusing on all those experiences where you win a prize, be it sport or, or some other kind of performance, a variety of experiences just for the intrinsic benefit of doing it a part of, of, um, of helping here. That's exactly right. You, you want to have a child who is just superb athletically, incredible uh, as a sprinter, and, and they can still continue to do that, but maybe get them playing some, I don't know, some tennis or get them onto the soccer field or playing some cricket or maybe – get them to play the piano. Great thing about learning to play the musical musical instruments is you cannot become proficient without making mistakes, probably millions of them. And by letting them experience that, they get to learn how to improve through mistakes. Just so the I'm, second Oh, go ahead, please. I'm mindful of time and I'd love to share a couple of others, but I, I love your questions as well. The second one is to shift the focus from expectation reinforcement to autonomy support. What that means is instead of saying, here are my standards and I expect that you will satisfy my standards, we say to them, what's important to you and how can I support you to do that? And if they have things that are important to them that mean nothing to us, like let's say you've got a kid who wants to be a Twitch streamer. They want to create a YouTube channel to rival Mr. Beast, who is the world's number one YouTuber. We might look at that and say, oh my goodness, you're setting yourself up for a really, really unsuccessful, horrendously 
failure life. I mean, how many people really get to succeed at this? But when we give them the the autonomy support, we say, all right, well, how do we support this? How do we move in this direction? And what else do we need to do to help you to have a well-rounded, well-balanced life? We give them the opportunity to do things that they want to do and fail. But if they've got that intrinsic motivation, the failure won't be nearly as debilitating as the failure in something that we're forcing them to do. What I wanted to ask you just finally is is that other kind, I think it was the third kind or maybe the second kind of um, case here, which is where it is the parents, perhaps unintended communications that uh, impact. And there's the really part, interesting part of the research um, that's been done into this where you effectively imagine how your child would respond to a bunch of statements and those statements are about parental expectation. Is this a good ruler to run over a parent's own communications, just to check. I, I think that it can be. I really, I really think that it can be. Maybe I can share a study that can help us uh, to to get out of our own way, and 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 it might be a nice place to finish. This is from a. a uh, I studied many, many years ago now where a pottery class was di- randomly divided into two different groups. One group was told that they would be assessed on how many pots they made in the pottery class throughout the semester. The other class was told that they would be assessed on the best pot that they made throughout the semester. What the researchers found is that the group that were told to make as many as they could made vastly more, significantly more than the group who were told make the best one you can. But the researchers also found that the group who made as many as they could made significantly better, more creative, uh, more durable, more, uh, more brilliant pots. In other words, it's by doing and doing and doing and failing and failing and failing that we learn to become better. We become more perfect through our failures. If we can help our children to understand that message, and get our own egos out of the way. Our children will generally thrive. Justin, thank you. Justin Colson, who is founder of happyfamilies.com.au.